This is America on Par, a powerful punch of political punditry in a pithy podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for checking things out here. Well, today, I want to start off with a joke. They say when you're doing public speaking, start off with a joke. Well, it's not my joke. This is Ronald Reagan's joke, and you know what? He told it better than I, I could, so take a listen. There was once upon a, a time that to be a Republican in this area of the country felt a little bit by bit like being Gary Cooper in High Noon, out, outnumbered in a big way. But I remember the story of a fellow who was running for office as a Republican, and he was in a rural area, and it wasn't known to be Republican, and he stopped by a farm to do some campaigning. And when the farmer heard he was a Republican, his jaw dropped, and he said, wait right here till I go get Ma. She's never seen a Republican before. <laughs> so he got her. And the candidate looked around for a podium from which to give his speech, and the only thing he could find was a pile of that stuff that Bess Truman took 35 years trying to get Harry to call fertilizer. (laughs) So he got up on the mound, and when they came back, he gave his speech. And at the end of it, the farmer said, that's the first time I ever heard a Republican speech. And the candidate said, that's the first time I've ever given a Republican speech from a Democratic platform. <laughs> Man, I miss Reagan. Anyway, there's, there's a serious point uh, I want you to get out of that joke. Ultimately, it's a story about a person who goes someplace he's never been to talk to people he's never met. People who may disagree with him, by the way. And he's taking that risk. And, and by taking that risk, he ends up creating some inroads. We don't know if those people end up voting for that guy or not, but there's a relationship that's been started there, and that's a good thing. Part of the problem in America today is that too many people, too many institutions, aren't willing to talk civilly and sincerely with those who may disagree. I'm sure you've even had the same problem on Facebook in your own life, right? It's a problem in big media. It's a problem in climate science. It's also a problem in the Democratic Party. And yes, it's a problem in the Republican Party. Let me tell you another story to illustrate this point. It's about one of our founding fathers, the author of the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson. He is the man who wrote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. All men. Not just white men. All men. He even wrote a paragraph in the initial draft of the Declaration that condemned the King of England for the slave trade, for kidnapping people in Africa, for forcing them onto boats headed for America. Many people died on those boats, and when they got to America, the King made them slaves. It was an indictment of the entire slave system. But it was cut from the final Declaration, not by Jefferson, but by the delegation from South Carolina. Okay. So for his time, Jefferson was a pretty enlightened individual. As the kids today would say, Jefferson was woke. That was back in 1776. But he may not have been as woke as people may think. See, in the early 1780s, Jefferson wrote this, quote, Comparing them by their faculties of memory, reason, and imagination, it appears to me that in memory they are equal to the whites, 
Oh, that's good. Nice. In reason, much inferior. He's saying the black and whites are not equal. He continues, the improvements of the blacks in body and mind in the first instance of their mixture with the whites has been observed by everyone and proves that their inferiority is not the effect merely of their condition of life. We know that among the Romans, about the Augustan age especially, the condition of their slaves was much more deplorable than that of blacks on the continent of America. Yet, notwithstanding these and other discouraging circumstances among the Romans, their slaves were often their rarest artists. They excelled, too, in science, insomuch as to be unusually employed as tutors to their master's children. He finishes up saying, It is not their condition, then, but nature which has proved the distinction. This is the man who wrote, All Men Are Created Equal. And then he says, Nature has created a distinction between blacks and whites. And he's saying that based upon his observation, what he's seen. We, have, we haven't seen any blacks in America that once they're freed become of the same intellectual level as, say, Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Jefferson. He doesn't see an equal there. That's just five years after he wrote, All Men Are Created Equal. He's questioning his own idea. Maybe blacks are equal in most regards, just not intelligence. All right. A few years later, Jefferson gets a letter from a man named Benjamin Banneker. Banneker is black. His mother was a freed slave, so Banneker is himself a freed man. He learned to read and write, self-taught mostly, and he actually became quite good at mathematics. He was hired to survey the land that would become Washington, D.C. That's, that's a pretty big job, especially back then. And in the process, Banneker wrote an almanac. Banneker sent that almanac to Jefferson with a letter that basically called Jefferson a hypocrite. He said, quote, Sir, how pitiable it is to reflect that although you are so fully convinced of the benevolence of the Father of mankind and of his equal and impartial distribution of those rights and privileges which he had conferred upon them, that you should at the same time counteract his mercies in detaining by fraud and violence so numerous a part of my brethren under groaning captivity and cruel oppression, that you should at the same time be found guilty of that most criminal act which you professedly detested in others with respect to yourselves. You hypocrite. Well, Jefferson was impressed. He didn't get defensive. He was impressed by Banneker. He was impressed by the almanac, by, by the fact that a black man was able to do this complex mathematical work. And he wrote back, he said, quote, I thank you sincerely for your letter of the 19th. And for the almanac, it contains, nobody wishes more than I do to see such proofs as you exhibit that nature has given to our black brethren talents equal to those of the other colors of men, and that the appearance of a want of them is owing merely to the degraded condition of their existence both in Africa and in America. What Jefferson is saying there is, nobody wants to prove me wrong more than me. I want to know that what I thought isn't true, that Given equal opportunity, blacks will show the same level of intellectual and artistic and creative development that whites can. And your almanac is a step in that direction. That's what Jefferson's saying. 
So Jefferson saw a piece of evidence, the Banneker Almanac, which challenged his own biases. And he said he hoped to see more things just like it to prove his initial thoughts were wrong. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you said, I hope I'm wrong, and I hope someone can show me something concrete, something real, that will change my mind? I do this. I do this with my climate positions. If you've listened to these podcasts, you know I'm what they call a climate change denier. Worse, I'm a right-wing nut job. Me, I think I'm being perfectly reasonable in assuming that science should follow the scientific method. I know, crazy, right? But my beliefs on climate must be able to be proven wrong, or they're no better than the so-called consensus. So yes, I have said that there are specific pieces of evidence that will change my mind. Show me, prove to me, that the water vapor feedback loop is happening in the real world, and I'll change my mind. Demonstrate why every single temperature record adjustment makes temperatures colder in the past and warmer in the present for a non-secret, for a well-published, opening up on the public reason, and, and a reason that's not biased, a reason that is based on scientific logic reasoning. Show me that, and, and I'll have to reconsider my previously held ideas. Oh, and do it without mentioning the words denier or Exxon. Do that. If you can do that, I can be proven wrong. That's what Jefferson's doing. He's seeking evidence that blacks can be just as eloquent, just as intelligent, just as creative as whites to demonstrate that his earlier idea, the one he stated in 1780, was wrong. Well, let's jump ahead to 1809. We are now in the last few weeks of Jefferson's second term as president. He's living in D.C., the town that was laid out in part by Benjamin Banneker. Well, over in Europe, the French Revolution has just happened, and Napoleon's come to power, and there's also been a power shift within the church in France, and a man named Henri Grégoire has become one of the bigwigs in charge of the clergy. Grégoire was an abolitionist and even got black men equal rights to white men in parts of the French Empire. Gregoire was pretty woke as well, I guess. So Gregoire writes a book called The Literature of the Negroes, kind of a compilation of of different writings of blacks from around the world. And he sends a copy of that book to President Jefferson in America. Now, there wasn't anything you could give Jefferson that he would enjoy more than a good book. Jefferson loved books. So, of course, Jefferson appreciated this gift, and more importantly, he actually read it. And in the process, his mind was changed. He wrote back to Gregoire, quote, I have received the favor of your letter of August 17th, and with it, the volume you were so kind as to send me on the literature of Negroes, Be assured that no person living wishes more sincerely than I do to see a complete refutation of the doubts I have myself entertained and expressed on the grade of understanding allotted to them by nature and to find that in this respect they are on par with ourselves. My doubts were the result of personal observation of the limited sphere of my own state where the opportunities for development of their geniuses were not favorable. 
and those of exercising it were still less so. I express them therefore with great hesitation, but whatever be their degree of talent, it is no measure of their rights. Because Sir Isaac Newton was superior to others in understanding, he was not therefore lord of the person or property of others. On this subject, they are gaining daily in the opinions of nations, and hopeful advances are making towards their reestablishment on an equal footing with the other colors of the human family. I pray you, therefore, accept my thanks for the many instances you have enabled me to observe of respectable intelligence in that race of men, which cannot fail to have the effect in hastening their day of relief. In 1782, he says he doesn't think that blacks are on the same level as whites with intelligence. 1809, Jefferson thinks he's been proven wrong by this book from Gregoire. It took 17 years, but his mind had been changed. Why did he hold those initial beliefs? Because his opinions, his initial beliefs, were based on his own limited sphere of observation. Jefferson admitted he was in a bubble, much like our institutions are in a bubble today, much like we Americans are in bubbles today around people we know, and we don't associate with people we don't know, don't like, they're others. And so we don't fully understand them the way that Jefferson didn't fully understand the potential of blacks because it wasn't in his sphere. It wasn't in his bubble. It took 17 years. But his mind was changed, and it was changed because he was willing to have discussions with people he had never met before, who held opinions opposite of his, and had information he could use. Reagan's joke and Jefferson's story have the same moral. Don't be afraid to talk to people with whom you may disagree. Now, I didn't tell you those two stories just because I like history and I like to hear myself talk. Yes, I do like history, and yes, I do like to hear myself talk, but that's not what I want you to get out of this. I've been reading this week a five-part series in a Real Clear Politics article by, by Jay Cost and Sean Trent about why Donald Trump won the presidency. They're analyzing the final vote county by county, state by state, region by region. For someone like me who loves politics and statistics, this is like giving Jefferson a book. The biggest takeaway from their analysis is this. Hillary Clinton did better than even Barack Obama did in the mega cities. But everywhere else, she did historically bad. Just awful. In small cities and in large towns and in small towns and in truly rural areas, finding a Clinton voter was even more rare than that, that politician in Reagan's joke, than Gary Cooper at high noon. And that's also kind of the point. Remember in Reagan's joke, the farmer had never heard a Republican speech before. Well, in 2016, it's pretty safe to say that almost every farmer in America voted Trump over Hillary. It's been a complete reversal of the old Democrat coalition. Moreover, there aren't a lot of megacities. New York, L.A., Chicago, Houston, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Seattle, Boston, Dallas. You start getting into large cities after that. Not really megacities. That's about it for megacities. Yes, there's a lot of population in those cities, 
but it's not enough to overcome the losses that Democrats had in the rural areas. Why is that? Why did the rural areas abandon Hillary to such a degree? Well, I think it's partly because she abandoned them first. Those people think of themselves as living in the breadbasket. Hillary said they were a basket of deplorables. Hillary was raised in Chicago, went to Ivy League schools. Yes, she lived in Little Rock, Arkansas with Bill. But as soon as he was elected president and they went to Washington, she never went back to Little Rock. She never went back to the basket cases in the heartland. She moved to New York City. New York City! She doesn't like rural America or rural Americans. She doesn't understand them and their ways. She never even tried to get their vote. She's in her bubble. They aren't allowed in. That's why she lost. You tell people often enough that you don't think they matter and they will eventually believe you. But there's a word of caution in this for Republicans. The GOP is essentially doing the same thing that Hillary did. Why did Hillary win the big cities? Because the Republicans didn't. Be honest with yourself. If you live in a city, there are certain parts of your city where you won't find a single elected Republican. Not a city council member or a school member or a constable. None. Nada. Zip. And I'm willing to bet there are also places in your cities where not only are Republicans not getting elected, but the Democrats are running unopposed. Hillary wrote off the basket of deplorables, but Republicans are writing off the inner city. That has to stop. That has to change. Conservative principles help all people, not just the people who vote for you. That's the beauty of self-determination and equal opportunity and economic freedom. That's the genius of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It works for everyone. So why aren't the Republicans even trying to go into all parts of America to share the good news? Why are Republicans content to sit in our little basket with others who already think like us and talk like us and look like us? Why aren't we trying to reach out? I hope it's because, one, we haven't thought about it, and two, it's because we don't know how. See, those two things are fixable. And by the way, that is the big project I've been working on for this past year. It's called Conservative Ground. We're about getting ready to launch with this. I'm so excited about this. We're about ready to launch this in all parts of our great nation, even in the megacities. I hope the reason Republicans haven't been doing this is because they didn't think about it or they didn't know how to do it. We can fix that. I hope it's not because Republicans decided the people in those neighborhoods and in those cities and in those states don't matter. If that's the case, then we have more work cut out for us because before we can change the hearts and minds and votes of those in the cities, we first have to change the hearts and minds of our fellow conservatives. And that's going to take a little longer. After all, it took Jefferson 17 years. Thanks for listening. If you like these podcasts, please share them with your friends on Facebook and Twitter. If you'd like to leave a comment, you can always do so on my website, americaonpar.com. I'm Stephen Parr, and I can still see old glory flying over. In the first light of the morning, I can see old glory flying over.